0: Well, since the beginning of the year, uh, we've been working our way through a letter in the Bible called First John. Um, we're going to continue in that this morning in, in chapter 4, starting in verse 7, and, and if you've been following along with this, you may have noticed that what John has been doing is, uh, a lot of what he's been doing is he's been laying out for his friends some characteristics or, or markers that they can use to tell the difference between true Christianity and false Christianity. There's been three big criteria that he keeps on coming back to over and over again. By this point, he's already talked about all of them uh, multiple times. Uh, the first criteria he describes in chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 4, and that's that true Christians confess that Jesus is the Christ and that he's come in the flesh. The second uh, he describes in chapter 2 and again in chapter 3 is that true Christianity, true Christians obey God's commands. The third characteristic he talked about in chapters 2 and 3, and and he talks about in our text again this morning, and that's that true Christians love one another. I'm guessing that for many of you that have been following along these commands to love, um, they're the ones that, that we can be quick to celebrate and rally around. They make us feel really good about what we're trying to do. I'm guessing in our, in our modern society, uh, you've heard many times how virtuous love is, that it's something we should all strive after. If you're here and you've been following along and you're not a Christian, I'm guessing that these calls to love are, are something that probably resonated with you, that, that you thought, yeah, I, uh, I agree with that. The other two, though, a lot of times, I know this is true for me, uh, initially, my response isn't uh, quite as excited. It, it might cause me to bristle when John tells us that those who make a practice of sinning are children of the devil, or that those who deny Jesus as Christ are liars and antichrists. I don't think I'm too far off to assume. I haven't talked to many of you about this. But I don't think I'm too far off to assume. That the way we respond to love is probably pretty different than the way we respond to those sorts of commands. I thought this week about um, how it's probably unlikely or impossible that any one of us have ever heard anyone say, What? You are narrow minded if you think everyone on this earth should love. Who are you to tell everyone on the earth? that love is the answer to their problems. Instead, we've heard things like, all we need is love, that love is what would answer all of our problems from both Christians and non-Christians. In chapter 2, where John says that those who love are in the light and those who hate are, are walking in darkness, I'm guessing a lot of us respond by thinking, yeah, that sounds about right. Hateful places are pretty dark. Or when John tells us that we should love indeed deed and truth and not just words, our initial reaction is probably, yeah, that sounds great. People should be willing to lay down their lives for one another, even if I'm not sure if I would be willing to do that. I thought this week about how funny it was that our culture, on the one hand, has set us up to respond so positively to a command that is extreme and universal, to love. In one sense, I was kind of thankful for that, that, that we live in a culture that that has conditioned us to respond so positively to, to one of the commands that God gives us in his word. But it also made me think about how our culture also tells us that it's possible, many times even tells us it's virtuous to separate that command to love from those other two commands. I know I've wrestled with this idea before. I wonder if you have. I wonder if to you, confessing Jesus in the flesh as our Christ and obeying commands that were given thousands of years ago sometimes seems out of date, antiquated, something that that we as humans have, have kind of moved on from. I wonder if you wrestle with that idea. But love, love feels so contemporary. It almost feels like as a society we've almost, uh, we, we only discovered it in the last hundred years. A couple of weeks ago as I was preparing this, um, I heard an interview on the radio that I've been thinking a lot about. It's an interview with a New Testament scholar that grew up as a Christian but is no longer a Christian, has left the faith. And, and the person interviewing him asked him to describe why he left the faith. And he, he described kind of how that happened. Um, and, and then once he got to the end of that description of his life, he, he, said, he said this He said, The Bible is a book that I resonate with. I don't believe in miracles, I don't think Jesus was raised from the dead, but I absolutely resonate with the Bible, and I think its core message is something that I want to live by. He went on to say, this is a quote, even though I don't believe in God, I don't believe Christ is the Son of God, I do believe that the life of love that is preached in the New Testament is a life that we ought to all try to replicate. I wonder if that's a message that you've heard before, maybe from friends that aren't Christians. Maybe it's something you've wrestled with as a Christian. It's something I want us to think about this morning, and it's something that I think John gives us some really nice tools to think about. Is our motivation for love as Christians any different than the non-Christians around us that are seeking to love? John's already told us that we're supposed to love, that it's an indication of being in the light. But what are we to make of claims like the one in this interview, that we can separate that message of love from those other two characteristics he's been laying out of true Christians? What are we to make of arguments that confessing Jesus as Christ, obeying old commandments, those aren't the core message of the Bible. The core message of the Bible is love. As Christians, what are we supposed to think about this? I think John helps us a lot this morning. What John does here, this is the third time he's uh, commanded his friends to love. What he does unique here is he adds to what he's been saying about love uh, earlier in the letter to explain why Christians should love. I think what John helps us see this morning is that although worldly love and Christian love share many, many visible characteristics, they can look the same many times that Christian love and worldly love have motivations that couldn't be more different. So for us, I I have two simple goals. This morning I'm going to try and help us understand uh, from John's perspective here in his letter, what is the motivation for Christian love? That's the first goal. And then the second goal is to quickly think about why does that motivation matter? So, please stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word. And we look at John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is. Is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to also love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Please be seated. In a previous life, before I moved to Nashville, I was a high school football coach. I played high school football. You don't have to have been inside a high school football locker room to know that the pregame pep talk is a a core component of the pregame ritual. As a coach, I learned that a good pep talk needs to do two things. Uh, First... It needs to create a sense of unity in the room that we're we're not alone in this crazy thing we're about to go try to do. We're all in this together. Second thing a good pep talk has to do is uh, it needs to clearly communicate a shared motivation for why we're all going to go do this together. I think that's exactly what John is doing in this short passage. I think we look at how he starts And ends this passage here. He begins with beloved. Let us love one another. And then in verse 11. He says beloved. If God so loved us. We ought to also love one another. See John is telling his friends here. That our love for one another. This is not a a me giving you a command. This is us. Our love for one another. Is a central component of what true Christianity looks like. But what I want to uh, spend some time unpacking this morning is the second thing he does. He tells his friends why they should love one another. He gives the command in a way that builds unity, but then he lays out for them a clear motivation that we all share for why we love one another. I think there's two things that John says to his friends here that are relevant for us this morning. First, that we love one another because God first loved us. And second, we love one another because when we love one another, it makes God's love visible to the world today. So let's, uh, let's jump in the text here so I can see where I'm getting these, uh, I can show you where I'm getting these two points. First of all, John wants his friends to know that there's only one source for the kind of love that he's commanding them to have for one another. The love he's talking about isn't something that, that we generate. It's not something that humans do to give us meaning. The way he talks about it, love for John is not even fundamentally an action. I think this is kind of a subtle distinction, but, but I think it matters Clearly, John thinks of love as an action. He's been saying throughout his whole letter that we should love one another. He even told us in the previous chapter that it can't just be words. It has to be actions. But John also wants us to see that the root of all of these actions comes from God. Because God is love personified. The way John describes it here, God is not only loving But John says God is love. This means that God's loving actions are an expression of who he is. It's a way of communicating something about himself, those those actions. What John's claiming here is that God himself defines what love is. I think that's where John starts, but... um, it's certainly not enough to motivate us to love because of a, a big problem that John tells us about also. John tells us in verse 12 that no one has ever seen God. The invisibility of God's actually a pretty common theme in, in John's writings. Uh, In the first chapter of John's gospel, he says the exact same words that we read here in in verse 12, that no one has ever seen God. In chapter 5 of his gospel, he records where Jesus tells his followers, his voice you have never heard, and his form you've never seen. So on the one hand, John tells his friends, God is love. He is the source of all love. But then on the other hand, he tells his friends, no one has seen God. He, he creates this vast distance between us and God. So how are we supposed to draw on this source of love if no one's ever seen him and no one's ever heard him? Verse 10 is where John tells us how this is possible. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. He tells us that that we're able to see what this love is like. We're able to experience this God that is love because he loved us. It's not because we loved him first. You know, really, how could we? How could we possibly have loved God first if He is the source of love, if he defines what love is, and yet we've never seen him or heard him? John tells us that God made his love manifest among him and his followers. Manifest is not a word that we use very often or, or maybe don't think about what it means very often. What John is trying to say here is that God took something that was invisible to us, a part of his character, is, a part of his, character his love, and he took that invisible something and he put it into action in a way that was visible to us, in a way that we could see, that we could talk about, that we could interact with. Not just an abstract meaning of love, but a visible expression of love. Now, the Bible describes different ways that God manifests himself in ways uh, that are visible to people. So maybe, you know, you think of something like the burning bush. But John points to a manifestation that was the most faithful representation of God the Father, Jesus. God made his love visible to the world by sending his son, Jesus. You might be noticing that this sounds, the language here John's using, sounds pretty similar to one of the most well-known verses on the earth, John 3.16. I think that's exactly what John has in mind here because he's using the exact same phrase. Earlier, I talked about how John repeatedly told us in his gospel that God is invisible. None of us have seen him. None of us have heard him. But what's important to point out there is that John doesn't do that in his gospel to mock us or to lead us to despair or to show us uh, that we never will see God. John does that in his gospel always because he's trying to help us understand why Jesus' coming is so significant for us. Like I said earlier in John 1, he tells us no one's ever seen God, but then he follows that immediately with, but Jesus has made him known to us. Chapter 14 of his gospel, this is one of my favorite parts of his gospel. He records a conversation Jesus is having with his followers where where Jesus tells them, hey, pretty soon I'm going to be gone. I'm leaving. I'm going to the Father. I'm going to prepare a place for you. He's encouraging them. They are freaking out, though. Thomas says, we don't even know where you're going. How are we supposed to find this house? You're preparing for us. We don't know the way. Jesus tells him, Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Philip immediately after that pleads, Lord, show us the Father. That'll be enough for us. Just show us the Father. Jesus says, Philip, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. John goes on to tell us here in his letter that it wasn't only Jesus' existence here on earth that shows us what God's love is like. It wasn't just his life, although his life did show us what God's love was like. John tells us here that Jesus came that we might have life through him. He tells us the reason why God manifested his love by sending his son is so that we could live through him. See, here in his letter is where I think John makes an unbreakable link between the kind of love that he's talking about, a very popular idea, and a much less popular idea, the idea of propitiation. the statement that God had to show his love for us by making Jesus the propitiation for our sins is pretty short. He doesn't unpack that a whole lot here. But if you look across the Bible, there are three really big assumptions behind that statement, none of which give many people the kind of warm and fuzzy feelings that we often uh, get when we hear the word love. The first uh, thing is that it assumes that we're guilty, that we're rebels to God's will, that we've sinned against God, that we're his enemies. Second, it assumes that there is a penalty that we deserve for that rebellion. That penalty is God's wrath, that we deserve death. And third, it assumes that Jesus, although he was God in the flesh, perfect, full of glory, holy, that Jesus displayed God's love for us by willingly bearing that wrath and that punishment that we deserved in a bloody, violent death. God didn't show us his love through sentimental words or kind acts, but by pardoning our guilt at his cost. So why do Christians love? Well, John tells his friends, and he tells us this morning, one of the reasons is that we should look at God. We should see the God that is love. We should see the depth of our sins and the love that God poured out in even greater proportion through Jesus. And he tells us in verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to also love one another. But he goes on to give a second reason, too. Uh, Some authors I read described uh, God loving us first through Jesus as one of the primary ways that that God, here's the way they said it, that God solved his invisibility problem. A British pastor, John Stott, that I was reading some uh, in preparing for this, um, this is how he responds to that, that God solved his invisibility problem by sending Jesus. Uh, John Stott writes, this is truly wonderful. But that happened over 2,000 years ago. Is there no way in which the invisible God makes himself visible today? Earlier we saw how the beginning of verse 12 here is the exact same phrase John uses in chapter 1 of his gospel. No one has ever seen God. What's interesting is that in John's gospel, he finishes that sentence with our first motivation for love that he's laid out here. He tells us no one's ever seen God, but Jesus has made him known. Here, though, he finishes that sentence in a different way. He finishes the sentence with a second motivation that Christians have to love one another. The first half of the sentence is the exact same words. No one has ever seen God. But he finishes this sentence by saying this. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. What John tells us here is that God first made himself known to us, made his love known to us through Jesus, and by absorbing our guilt at the cross. But he makes his love visible to the world now through our love for one another. I love how John Stott goes on to describe the the answer to the question that, that he laid out. Because of John's deliberate, this is the Apostle John he's referencing, because of John's deliberate repetition of the exact same phrase, this can only mean one thing. The invisible God, who once made himself visible in Christ, now makes himself visible in Christians if we love one another. He goes on to say that he calls us to be a community of love, loving each other in the intimacy of his family, especially across barriers of age and sex, race and rank. Loving the world he loves in its alienation, hunger, poverty, and pain. It's through the quality of our loving that God makes himself Visible today. So you see, when you look across John's letter, what he's been doing is building this chain from an invisible God that is love, that defines what love is, him acting to make that love visible to the world through Jesus and Jesus' death and resurrection, but then today making his love visible through those of us that are in Jesus. Through the love in our life together, uh, I think this is what John means whenever he says, God's love abides in us. And he goes on to say that God's love is perfected in us when we love one another. Now, there was actually quite a bit of disagreement that I read about what John means exactly with the word perfected here. Uh, Everyone agreed, though, that there's no sense of God's love being insufficient, and he somehow kind of needs us to, to add to it. What I saw a number of commentators saying is that uh, what this likely means is that as God carries out his loving, redemptive plan, he carries it out through us right now when we love one another. I've been thinking about it this past week as sort of like our our, uh, modern power grid. Um, I, I doubt many of us give a whole lot of thought to where the electricity comes from that, that generate these light bulbs that are lighting this room right now. Or maybe I haven't given a whole lot of thought to how the switch on the wall is, is connected to those light bulbs. But, but what I thought about this week is that every time we turn on a light switch, it tells us something about things that are happening in power plants hundreds of miles from us that we likely will never encounter. The light... And a light bulb doesn't really tell us a whole lot about that light bulb itself, but it's a visible manifestation of electricity that's generated at coal-fired power plants or natural gas power plants, hydroelectric dams, nuclear reactors, some combination of these things. We're probably never going to see those power plants. But when we see the light coming from this light bulb, we know that those generators are turning we know that those power plants are doing what they're supposed to be doing. When we love each other, it doesn't say much about us at all. What it says something about is the unseen God that chose to make his love manifest in Jesus so that we might have life. It says something about the God that uses our life in him to make this love visible to the world. So why do Christians love? John tells us that Christians love, first, because he first loved us, but then second, because he uses our love for one another now as an instrument to make his love visible to the world. I think one of the most encouraging things for me this past week was, was realizing, I was, I was connecting with this and, and thinking of myself as sort of an instrument that God is using to show himself to the world. And, and, and there, was, there was something there that was encouraging. But what really encouraged me was, was when it hit me that I am a part of that world that he's showing his love to. That in my love, in our love together, that God is consistently giving me a visible, tangible manifestation of his love for me. So You see, although worldly love and Christian love, they share many, many visible features, the motivation for each are actually in opposition to each other. Christian love is given its meaning by God. It is always about God. It is always an expression of God. Worldly love, worldly love claims that, that the core is love and that you can keep that core without God at all. Now the last thing I want to do this morning is, is to set up worldly love as, as some sort of straw man that's easily knocked down. That's not what I'm trying to do. And if you're not a Christian, I'm not even trying to undermine your loving acts towards those around you. What I am trying to say, though, is that Christian love is always about God abiding in us. And at the end of the day, I think worldly love is always just about us. I don't just mean in the selfish sense. I mean, all of us have experienced in ourselves um, love that's self-seeking. That's not what I'm trying to say. Even in the best of cases, worldly love is still primarily about the other person. If I'm sacrificially loving someone, it's mainly for them. They are the end of that loving act. This is why removing some of those less fashionable characteristics about christianity a transcendent god sinful people jesus dying on the cross one way to find propitiation this is why removing those sorts of things from love creates a love that that sort of retains a lot of the visible characteristics of christian love but it's not the same sort of thing at all our love for one another in this body is not a statement about us Even sacrificial love is not a statement primarily about the other person. Christian love in Christian community is always about God abiding in us. I think detaching love from from this source, this motivation that that John gives us here, the image I've had this week in my head is sort of like um, cutting flowers from a field and putting them in a vase on our kitchen table. They still look the same in a lot of ways. They're still beautiful, they're still flowers, but, but really they're only still flowers in a very superficial sense. Those flowers out in the field are connected to a much wider ecosystem. They have roots that are drawing from the soil. Bees taking pollen from them. They're dropping petals and leaves that are decomposing in the soil. See, they're connected to an entire ecosystem that they are designed to thrive in and grow in. Of course, there's nothing wrong with cutting flowers and putting them on the kitchen table, but, but once you do that, you take away a lot of what flowers are designed to really do. When you do that, those flowers serve one purpose they serve us by being beautiful in our room. I think the same thing happens when we make love the core and not God. We make love into something that's detached from its source so it can serve our purposes. And again, I don't just mean my selfish purpose. I mean, even in the best case scenario, the collective our purpose. We end up with a shell of what love is really meant to be. I kind of thought about it also is the difference between uh, on a cold day like yesterday sitting beside a crackling wood fire in a fireplace, the difference between that and sitting beside one of those flat screen TVs that they have at some restaurants now that play a video of a fire burning on kind of repeated loop with some crackling sounds. You know, there's, there's a lot about those two things that visibly look the same, but one is just a shell of the other. I want to finish this morning by, by helping us connect with why this motivation matters uh, in another way from, from the flower image. If you're having a hard time imagining why that motivation really changes what love is for you, maybe think about some of the questions that we often ask ourselves whenever loving someone becomes difficult. I wonder if you ever ask yourself, Will loving this person make me happy? If we're the end game in love, then that question would make a lot of sense. But if you're thinking about God, the God that is love, expressing his love to the world through Jesus, and then now those of us that are in Jesus, our love for one another being an expression of his love to the world, then that question wouldn't make a whole lot of sense at all. I think a better question from that perspective is, can I show God to this person by loving them? I think another question we often ask ourselves in in Christian community is, does this person deserve my love? I think from the perspective John has given us here, the question we would ask ourselves if we're motivated by God sharing his love to the world through us would be something more like this. Does this person need God's love? The love that God gave me when I didn't deserve it. So I wonder how often you ask yourself, Why do I love? If you're not a Christian here this morning, I I hope you'll look at John's words and ask yourself, honestly, without this costly love from the God that is love, where does my love come from? Where am I putting my hope? If you're a Christian here this morning, Friends, I encourage you, don't buy into a cheap imitation of the expensive love that God gave us. Because John's message to his friends is God's message to us this morning. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another when we're motivated to love one another because of the love of God that he first showed us in Jesus, then the love of God, the invisible God, abides in us and is perfected in us. Pray with me. Father, what a gift you have given us by manifesting your love through Jesus. God, you showed us your love by paying the cost that we deserve to pay. You showed it by bearing the stripes that we deserved by taking on the death that we deserved in defeating it. God, what a gift that you choose us right now to be instruments to show your love to the world around us. I pray this morning that your love for us would motivate our love for one another and that it would be a display to the world around us of you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.